We're back, everybody. Excited to bring you episode 59. This is a very good episode, I, I think at least. You know what? Let's just get right to it. Quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? I'd want to know what bus it was. You think I'm going to tell you that? Yes. Ah, very good. There are rules, Jack, and I want you to get this right. No one goes off the bus. You try to take any passengers off the bus, I will detonate it. I want my money by 11 a.m. We can't pull that kind of money in time. Focus, Jack. Your concern is the bus. And don't try to call. The radio's down. Now, the number of the bus is 2525. It's running downtown from Venice. It is at the corner of Ocean Park. That was a clip from the movie Speed. And here we have a Kentucky lawyer who was speedily suspended for making bomb threats on social media. Well, kind of. Here is what the lawyer said. I uh, am comfortable speaking on behalf of the public directly to and saying this, knock it the off. If you got a problem with my language or what I'm saying or how I'm doing it, can you stand up like big girls and speak out? Please sue my ass. I want you to understand this. You want to give me the best Christmas gift anybody's ever given me? Give me a reason to blow your asses up. It'll be the best Christmas present I've ever gotten. Now, as a result of this statement, the lawyer was suspended in Kentucky and Ohio. The Kentucky bar found probable cause to believe that the lawyer either, quote, poses a substantial threat of harm to his clients or the public, or that he is mentally disabled and lacks the mental fitness to continue to practice law. Meanwhile, the Ohio's disciplinary council ruled that the lawyer was, I quote, or has a history of domestic violence and has made multiple threatening statements towards women and one of his children, including direct statements or insinuations that he was going to kill them. Now, in his defense, the lawyer says, look, you, you guys are taking this way out of context. And he says, look, my threat to blow up the lawyers in the family court cases was not a threat of physical violence, but it's a threat of exposing their activities and having them prosecuted for their misconduct. And this lawyer is probably telling the truth, not about their misconduct, who knows, but he's probably telling the truth in the fact that most lawyers aren't crazy enough to actually publicly post a criminal threat of violence online. We know the law, right? That's going a little too far. But here's the thing that the lawyer didn't understand, and this is important. Lawyers, you don't get to misspoke. And this is a big problem we have, not just for lawyers, but in everyone's society. We tend to take the most aggressive language we can to make our points. And so, for instance, we've all heard the expression, silence is violence. And the truth of the matter is, no, it's not. There's no violent crime that I know of that will get you sent to Sing Sing for silence. Now, there are crimes in the, you know, of, of silence or omission of truth, etc., but those aren't considered violent offenses. And as lawyers, it's important. I said well, earlier, we don't get to misspoke. See, when you spoke for a living, misspoking isn't an option. 
right? It's like being a surgeon and miscutting. You don't get to do that. You have to use your words precisely. And when you're making a legal argument, it isn't enough to try to say the thing that's going to get you the most likes on Twitter, but rather to be very precise. I'll give you a great example. We often hear people say things like taxation is slavery. No, it's not. Not American chattel slavery, at the very least. All right, taxation doesn't get your kids sold off to someone else's plantation. When you make those statements, at the very least, you uh, reduce your credibility. People tend to think that, you know, I don't really trust you so much. You tend to exaggerate and be hyperbolic. And at most, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble like this lawyer here. I truly believe he did not mean that he was going to physically blow anybody up. He might actually even get his law license back. He's been interimly suspended in both states. But it's going to take some time. It's going to cost him some money. He's going to spend a lot of nights driving Uber, all for hyperbolic language that could have been avoided by simply saying what he said there. All right. I have some information that will expose bad acts on these people's part. I'm just going to tell you that. Also, the second thing here, I'm not sure he had such information. And here's one of the things also another lesson to learn is making idle threats. If you've got the goods, lay them out there. You don't have to. This idea of, oh, do this thing for me or otherwise I'm going to spill the beans, it almost puts you in trouble. Because as an officer of the court, you have an obligation to expose corruption in the family court, whether or not you have any business before them. So when you make it contingent upon them doing what you want, what you're basically saying is, I'm willing to ignore my obligation to expose the truth if you give me what I want. That's never going to make you look good. All right, you got the goods, simply bring them before the appropriate people, or <laughs> make sure you have receipts, and let the chips fall where they may, and your personal interest in vendetta should have no part in that. Anyway, now I'm a masseuse. And I really, really like it. It's in like a salon or a spa? Or oh, no, I, I go to people's houses, usually. I was slow going at first, but now I, I actually have a lot of clients. What, what about you? What do you do? I work at the American Library of Cultural History. The what? Exactly. It's kind of a television library. Do you watch a lot of TV? No, no, no. It's television history. What's on now, I, I have no clue. Yeah. And I tried to watch one of those Housewives of idiot town, but I, I got so depressed that I really thought I was going to just go jump off a building, so. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, because I tried to watch one of those ones with my daughter, and I could not believe what I was watching. No brains and the fake cheekbones and the fake boobs. Do you like fake boobs? No. No, I like real boobs. Hmm. Yeah, I got real boobs. That's working out for us then. <laughs> that was a clip from the movie Enough Said, which starred Julia Louise Dreyfus and soprano star James Gandolfini. Uh, this was one of the last films that Gandolfini appeared in before his untimely death in 2013. And here we have a case of an Illinois lawyer who said more than enough and earned him a nomination for the Pitbull Award. And we give that award to lawyers who just don't know when to let go. This lawyer lived in a Chicago suburb called The Village. And in 2017, he sought a job, employment with The Village. You can't beat that commute, right? You're working at home. <laughs> and when he didn't get the job, he told the village attorney that he would make sure the village spent every dollar that they would have received, that he would have received as an employee on legal fees for not hiring him. And my guess is that the employer didn't think twice about this when he said it. He said, I ain't scared. 
do you, boo-boo? He didn't understand who he was talking to. Uh, this attorney went and did him, me, and you. Uh, he made good on this threat by filing at least, and I don't know why we don't know the number, but at least 26 lawsuits in state and federal court against the village. And not just the village, he filed it against the elected officials, a staff, uh, fellow residents, even volunteers. How are you going to sue the volunteer? All right. He also filed about 150 FOIA requests for the village to turn over certain, you know, all this information. I filed 10 ethics complaints with the village against the village. Surpri not surprisingly, all of which were denied. And sure enough, he did accomplish one goal. The village spent hundreds of thousands of dollars defending against these various lawsuits. Now, interestingly, the lawyer didn't win any of these cases. And he's likely to lose the newest case, the one that's being brought against him by the state bar for filing frivolous lawsuits meant only to harass the other party. And given that this lawyer went 0-26 in the previous litigation, my money is on 0-27 and a suspension. Now, if you're like me, and heaven help you if you are, you gotta be thinking, why do you do this? It can't be for the money. After all, if the village had to pay lawyers for thousands of hours of legal work, this means that the lawyer had to do just as much work right, to bring these bogus lawsuits, likely even more work. And with all that time, he would have made way more money if he just drove Uber. By the way, something that he's likely to realize uh, during his upcoming suspension. So why'd he do it? My guess is he did it for the principle of the thing, of course. I am constantly trying to remind lawyers that the most dangerous expression in the law is, it's not the money, it's the principle of the thing. In civil litigation, it's only money. They don't make verdicts and, and render judgments in principle. It's just the money, honey. And when someone says it's you know the money doesn't matter, they've got something else in their mind, and it's going to be a problem. And here's why I think lawyers particularly get ourselves into trouble, is because we mistakenly believe that you know we have free access to the legal system. Sure, these other people are going to have to hire a lawyer, but I'm a lawyer, so I can do this for free. Um, but as this lawyer is about to find out, uh, there is no free lunch or free frivolous lawsuit, and definitely not 26 of them. All right, eventually we all have to pay the price for our stubbornness, and this lawyer is going to pay it uh, in Uber mileage. You testified earlier that the boys went into the store and you had just begun to make breakfast. You were just ready to eat and you heard a gunshot. That's, That's right, right, I'm sorry. So obviously it takes you five minutes to make breakfast. That's right. Right, so you knew that. Uh, Do you remember what you had? Eggs and grits. Eggs and grits. I like grits too. How do you cook your grits? You like them regular, creamy, or al dente? Just regular, I guess. Regular. Instant grits? No self-respecting Southerner uses instant grits. I take pride in my grits. So, Mr. Tipton, how could it take you five minutes to cook your grits when it takes the entire grit-eating world 20 minutes? I don't know. I'm a fast cook, I guess. I'm sorry, I was all the way over here. I couldn't hear you. Did you say you're a fast cook? That's it? Are we to believe that boiling water soaks into a grit faster in your kitchen than on any place on the face of the earth? I don't know. Well, perhaps the laws of physics cease to exist on your stove. Were these magic grits? 
I mean, did you buy them from the same guy who sold Jack his beanstalk beans? Uh, objection, Your Honor. Objection sustained. Are you Mr. sure about Tipton, that five you minutes? Ignore the question. Know. Are you sure about that five minutes? I don't know. I think you made your point. Are you sure about that five minutes? I may have been mistaken. I got no more use for this guy. That was a clip from everyone's favorite legal drama, <laughs> legal courtroom drama, uh, My Cousin Vinny. And it's an example of some of Vincent Gambini's best work in the movie. At least that's what I originally thought. But now I'm not so sure after a recent Michigan case in which a murder conviction was overturned based on improper cross-examination of the defendant's expert witness. And it earned the prosecutor a nomination for the Miss Mr. Uncongeniality Award. This case is particularly interesting because it demonstrates the drawbacks to sarcasm, which, quite frankly, is one of my two favorite asms. <laughs> but there's a good reason I no longer practice law, and that last joke is probably two of them. In any event, as you know, the purpose of cross-examination is often to cast doubt on the truthfulness or reliability of the witness's testimony. After all, in almost all cases, the witness has said something that hurts your client's case and the other lawyer is given an opportunity to cross-examine the witness and show that the witness might have been mistaken. Now that said, it isn't an open invitation to yell, liar, liar, pants on fire. All right, there's a fine line and it looks like this lawyer crossed it. According to the State Grievance Commission, the prosecutor repeatedly and gratuitously disparaged the doctor's qualifications and her intelligence. Secondly, the prosecutor characterized the doctor's findings in a sarcastic and mocking manner. Something like, so you're saying the earth is flat, much like your head, doctor. No, I said the victim was killed with a flathead screwdriver, counselor. I'm paraphrasing, all right? Third, the prosecutor repeatedly, and I'm just quoting here, badgered the witness, accusing her of withholding evidence from the jury and not knowing the difference between right and wrong. And one comment that drew particular focus from the commission was when the prosecutor said, you have the PhD, you have the training, you have done hundreds of these things. I mean, explain it to me, Lucy, I don't get it. Now you have to be thinking, what's wrong with that? Well, the commission found it problematic because not only did the prosecutor refer to the doctor by just the first name, but it's not even her name, right? Her name is something else, right? The Lucy reference is assumed to be a reference to Lucy from the uh, Peanuts comic strip. Lucy from the comic strip is particularly bad because, if you remember, uh, Lucy provided dubious psychological advice for a nickel, right? And in this case, the doctor was testifying and giving her expert testimony on the mental state of the defendant, all right, the time of the crime, and the issue at hand in the entire case was whether or not the defendant was mentally competent at the time they committed this horrible crime. Now, interestingly, I read through much of the transcript, and the cross-examination was rough but, but it's no rougher than you'd see on any episode of law and order and that is really the point of why the academy chose this case it's a reminder that what you see on tv is not an accurate portrayal of appropriate courtroom behavior i gotta tell you most striking to me about real courtroom drama is that there's very little of it the first time i sat in a jury box for a mock trial i fell asleep good thing is it's just a mock trial, so I only had to go to mock jail. But a real trial would have been worse. And I wonder how actual jurors actually are able to stay awake. 
because it seems to me they'd be really bored when they realize that real courtroom action is nothing like a few good men. All right, it's nothing like, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has trials, and those trials are boring as hell. You applaud for movies and you laugh at TV. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That real cross-examination, while boring, probably saves lives. And politeness and decorum, while in sleep-inducing to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me boring you to death. You need me boring you to death. And that's an important thing you know, to realize is that we kind of do need people boring you to death. This trial has overturned the thought that all the histrionics and the badgering made it impossible for the jury to come to a well-reasoned decision. And the more theatrics you have, the worse it is for you as far as to be able to sustain that verdict because there's always a claim that, you know, people got carried away with the emotion. And so this is a good reminder as lawyers and also as, uh, you know, litigants, as, as people who hire lawyers. That, you know, the lawyer who has all the personality and the, the bravado, and that might not be your best bet. Um, boring is sometimes good. Now, it's not great if you need to hire a speaker for, say, your next event. Hint, hint. You want someone who can bring it. But in other contexts, uh, don't sleep on boring. Boring works. Lincoln, let's get it together. Come on, college boy, you got a lot to do. It's a big day. Lincoln is a slightly weird kid. From a slightly weird family. I felt that chill in the air today. Mom, it's August. Alex is the kind of girl. Hey, you're supposed to pay before you open them. Dollar fifteen plus the two dollars, that's about four seventy-five. That Lincoln could only dream about. You must lead a pretty boring life. Compared to yours? Anything would be boring. But now. Get on the floor now! Fate has brought them together. You are an accessory to a class two robbery. She's taking Lincoln on the crime spree of the decade. You don't understand. I can't get in any trouble. I'm supposed to be at the library dropping off books. Relax, Lincoln. You're on summer vacation. And he's learning some lessons about hot women. I think I love you. That's the sweetest thing anyone's ever said to me. Trading Favors. That was a trailer for the movie Trading Favors. And here we have a main lawyer who has earned a nomination for most creative billing when he found himself in hot water for trading favors with a client. Now, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you're thinking, oh boy, all right, here we have yet another lawyer who tried to trade legal services for sexual favors or drugs or both. Nope, not this time. This lawyer tried to barter legal services for excavation services and a used Audi. And yeah, I'll explain. The lawyer had a long-time business client, and the client found himself unable to pay the lawyer's usual 250 bucks an hour hourly fee. So rather than kick his client to the curb, the lawyer suggested an alternative payment arrangement. He said, look, you know, transfer title of your 2009 Audi to me, uh, give me $20,000 mortgage on the real estate you own, and agree to do some excavation services for me, and we'll be good. Now, on first blush, this doesn't seem that bad at all. The lawyer's trying to work with his client, who's undergoing some financial hardship at the time, right? What's wrong with that? Well, for most professions, the answer would probably be nothing. 
But here the lawyer has two big problems that deal specifically with very special restrictions for lawyers. For one, a lawyer's fee must be reasonable. And while there's no clear-cut definition of what reasonableness is, one thing is pretty clear. To be reasonable, a fee must be clearly determinable. As a result, 250 bucks an hour is reasonable. That's a set amount. However, if you, your fee is, until I've made as much money as I want to make from you, that's not going to be reasonable. Now, in this case, the lawyer's fee is not reasonable because he never set forth, for instance, how many excavation hours he was entitled to for every hour of legal work he did. Also, once title of the car was transferred to the lawyer, it was technically his car. Even if the legal work in question only amounted to like 200 bucks, he'd still have a whole 2009 Audi. And finally, the $20,000 mortgage on the property was effective immediately, even though it might take a while, or maybe even never, before the lawyer performed the 80 hours of work necessary to earn that amount. Now secondly, and on a related note, before having a client transfer assets to you, a lawyer must make sure that the transaction is fair and reasonable, and inform the client in writing that he probably should get advice from another lawyer before signing the paperwork. Now, obviously, in this case, this client can't afford one lawyer, nevertheless two lawyers. So, so how does that work? And the answer is, it probably shouldn't work. This is the kind of situation that can go really bad, particularly for the client. If he gets an unscrupulous lawyer, that person could walk away with way more property than they'd be entitled to. And as a result, it's usually better and cleaner for everyone involved if lawyers conduct our business in cash. And I don't mean actual dollar bills, but I mean readily transferable funds. And if the client needs to finance your legal work, then you probably should send him to a bank. We're not bankers. Now, fortunately, this wasn't one of those really bad situations. But it was starting to look like that for a while. Because the client began to rethink the deal, started complaining to the lawyer, going back and forth. It ruined their long-time relationship. The client fires the lawyer and eventually files a complaint. The lawyer at this point does a really smart thing. He relinquishes all the claims against the client, gives him back his stuff says, you know what, you know what, Bar, you're right, I was wrong, my bad. He gets a reprimand, four months probation, and oh yeah, he's sentenced to three hours of hell, which is legal ethics courses not taught by me. <laughs> the lesson here, pretty simple though, is that rules is rules. No good deed goes unpunished when you're trying to help out a friend, All right, particularly if you have to break the ethics rules to do it. The lawyer here, fortunately, like I said, didn't have the most dire consequences, but he did do some legal work for free. And here's the thing is, it's noted in the report that he did good work. He got the client a good result, but he doesn't get paid for it because why? Rules is rules. It's bad grammar, but good legal ethics. Remember that until next time. And finally, if you're a lawyer and you need your CLE, don't hesitate to get it from Mesa CLE. This is your comedic legal education, but it still counts as CLE. Mesa, M-E-S-A, C-L-E dot com. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, please feel free to go to patreon.com. Either look us up at Mesa C-L-E or the Ethie Awards. And we thank you so much. See you next time.